Hey. Father Harrison. Yes. Father Harrison. Yes. Well, for, okay, uh, do before, this for our... Before you go into your own spiel, why did you cheat on me? Why did I cheat on you? Yes. Hey, first of all, this is a terrible break on protocol. I am leading the episode today. I don't care. I don't care. Uh, I'm mad. I'm angry. <laughs> I'm hurt. I'm uh, disappointed. I'm sad. Wow. Wow. Uh, so, Harrison, uh, let me flip the question around on you. Uh, you do seven or so podcasts with uh, the sisters of uh, the daughters of St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like happy for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just supportive. I go and how about my buddy Patrick Nevy over mm -hmm. at uh, the Crunch podcast. Mm -hmm. And I co-host for one episode. Yeah. Marvelously, by the way, did a great job. <laughs> uh, I have pretty great podcasting chops uh, by now. And and you get all uppity with me? Yeah. Do you really want to play this game? Absolutely. Do you really want to do this right now? Right here. Yeah. Right now. In front of the children. You we see, said we wouldn't argue in front of the children anymore, Harrison. But going on to the Dodgers podcast, Dodgers Project podcast, isn't really cheating on this podcast. It's entering into the deeper complementarity okay. of the life of the church between priests and religious. Okay. Well, I was throwing a bone to the laity. <laughs> it's about time they had someone who knew what, what they were doing on their podcast. There we go. It was okay, just one fine. episode. It didn't, it didn't mean anything, Harrison. It was just one episode. It meant nothing to me. You, you mean the world to me, Harrison. This, what we have, it can't be broken. I got nothing else. That was too good. That was too good. Okay, I'll let you good. do your thing. I'll let you do your thing now. <laughs> Now I need you to focus up. Okay. Okay. I want you to describe to the people what do I have in my hand. Just describe what it looks oh, like. It looks like uh, slight, a little bit more liquid tar. Liquid tar in what kind of glass? A shot glass. And a shot glass. Except I will say a liquid it, tar and a shot glass. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's got the it's you know liquidier than tar is obviously, but yes, it looks very thick. And okay. Yes, you were about to give away the thing. What I have in my hand is a shot glass of a substance called the black blood of the earth. What this is, is a coffee that um, was uh, brewed in a like a cold brew, except with a vacuum sort of seal kind of deal. Something sciencey, not normal way you make coffee. What this does to the coffee is that there's basically no acidity. There's none. It's super duper smooth. So it's easy on your teeth, easy on your stomach. You get all like the sweetness and flavor profiles of the coffee bean. Um, so there's really no need to add cream or sugar to that if you're that kind of person. Oh, and as a side note, it has 40 times more caffeine than regular coffee. I hope you don't have any heart conditions. Oh, not yet. <laughs> ah. Okay, so... I was dragging a little bit today. I was very excited about this. Yeah, you had your first dose this morning, right? I had my first dose this morning, and dosage is about right. You don't want to drink more than a shot glass of this stuff at the time. And it was good. It was good. The problem is my, my body is so out of whack that um, I uh, prayed my morning prayer, just kind of shaking as the breviary pages were fumbling about in my hands. <laughs> but uh, because I'm just so out of whack, just to get the podcast going, I had my little slip. So we're not sponsored by them. They're called uh, the product's called Black Blood of the Earth, and it's delicious and super dangerous. Um, so I'm excited for this because sometimes is there a daily limit to how much you're supposed to drink? Like probably. 
Like this is it's not good to drink that much caffeine until Harrison. Like I don't times, I don't know the math about it. You're like take this all of you and eat it. this is my body which get a few you know just just like yeah. just speeding through the Eucharistic prayer. Yeah, actually I said I did my holy hour. I actually did 3 holy hours in the span of 1 hour, so I've gotten more prayer in. Uh so this is going to be interesting because We'll see how this affects me throughout the podcast because I've already had my had my shot, and we'll see how that goes. How long did it take but for this it to nice. hit this morning? How long do you think? Um, you like any kind of caffeine? I think caffeine takes like, like maybe twenty minutes to kick in to okay. its full degree or whatever. Um, uh, you start feel a little bit. At first, I was like, it's one of those things. Like I was, it was, I was very afraid. I drank it. I'm like, that's yummy. But you don't feel things right away. And then as I'm, I'm praying, my hands start shaking more and more. So. So as I was saying, oh my gosh, uh, this is great because uh, Nick, producer Nick, he makes uh, roasts his own coffee beans, and right. so I get those. I put them in my espresso machine. But because of things that happen, sometimes I don't. I run out of beans, and after having producer Nick's uh, fresh roasted coffee beans, I'm not gonna go to store bought. <laughs> Impossible. So what you're saying is that Nick has kind of failed in his job as a brother and a lay person. Well, first of all, let's let's admit, even though I love uh, ragging on Nick Sharapa, can we talk about his successes for a moment? Sure, okay. What about that bumper last episode? Holy smokes. I, so, yeah, so last episode I was like, all right, I'm going to make him make something. Let's see what he does with it. Yeah. And it was yeah. so far above and beyond all my expectations. Essentially, what he's done now, he's he's actually forced us to have that segment again in the future. Yeah, be we're gonna have to because we can't waste that. No, exactly. Like we're gonna. Well, hopefully, we'll be able to go to. I'll be able to go to movies this summer and stuff like that, and so we can actually. Yeah. You because like I'm like this can't go to waste. This bumper is too good. No, it's so good. So good. Yeah. But uh, no, this is my fault. I'm supposed to, like, Nick makes coffee beans. I go visit him. I get the coffee beans. So I'm not, I'm not going to rag on him for that. But I am all fired up. I've got energy in my belly, non acidic energy because of the smoothness of the black blood of the earth. And now it's time for Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Anthony. I'm Father Anderson. Uh, yes. So <laughs> you may hear some downtown noises as we record on my end. I'm at our cathedral for the more, more or less for these two weeks. Um, I, uh, I'm, we, we're in our residential period for school right now, which is it's not super intense, but I kind of use it as a time to really focus on my studies, right? Like we have some classes and seminars and stuff like that every day, and I have to wake up at like 5 a.m., which is rough. It's early. It is very early. I do mm -mm. not like. I do not like. Mm-mm. But, you know, so, I, you know, I, I go to the classes, you know, sometimes perhaps one or two of the, not the student presentations, I always listen to those, but sometimes, you know, you hear stuff like about the library or whatever, which I already know. So I just, I sit there nicely in my Zoom call as I'm reading a paper <laughs> or something like <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm at our cathedral for a couple of weeks, which is really nice. Uh, it's it's a nice little break. It's very quiet here, I was, like in terms of like the lived space, not so much outside, we're downtown, mm -hmm. but... Uh, so it becomes very studious and prayerful. So it becomes almost like a little bit of a retreat where I'm not worrying about parish stuff too much. I mean, um, um, and I'm not, I don't, I've got most of that stuff taken care of before I, before I left. So I'm just reading books for the next two weeks. Nice. And, and articles and writing and stuff. So my goal, my personal goal is to have half my first chapter written by next, not this Friday, 
that when the podcast comes up the Friday after. Nice. So what's going on at your parish while you're while you're away from home? Well, we're still closed, so not much. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it was kind of happens. It was a it well. So our actually our government just started releasing the opening plan yesterday, and it's going to be aggressively fast actually because our first dosages now are ahead of the states. Um, we are at in BC, we are at 63% first dose vaccinations, which is quite good. And I think it's been the, re- it's been the reason why our numbers are finally going down. So everything's <laughs> starting to be able to open again, except <laughs> the churches. <laughs> I fell into a bit of despondency yesterday, to be honest. Uh, I, I've yeah. been trying, I even tweeted about it because I was just like fed up and maybe hopefully it gets to, someone catches attention of it in BC government, probably not, but you know, you just, Mm-hmm. It's we've been closed for seven months now, which is yeah, that's a, ridiculous. For I, I, I still don't know why. Um, and they said, well, churches can open, but they are reviewing the opening process for churches for whatever reason. I, I have a friend who actually works in the government here, and we were talking about it. And he said the issue is it's just these are all policy junkies who have no framework to work with, and yeah. so they don't understand how sometimes these rules are inequitable or um or unfair or whatever and they don't think about it and i get that i mean there's he said it really isn't intentional i get why it feels that way but it's not it's just people inadequate to the task in the bureaucracy so i'm I'm hopeful that we'll be able to open soonish so i'm going like on sunday i'll go back so i'm taking since school's monday to friday saturday is my day of rest which is kind of fun for a couple of weeks, and uh, and then Sunday it, I drive. I'll drive back up, do the stream mass, give out communion. Got to do a couple of things while I'm up there, and then I'll drive back down. It's only an hour and a half away, and yeah. So then using the time to just visit with some friends and stuff while I'm down here, and just yeah, it's been uh, so far. And I mean, I'm I'm reading a lot of stuff on the idea of mediation. I'm actually really excited. Oh can yes. I, can I can I go off on this for a moment? You may go off on this for a moment. On a- Yes. Sorry. Okay. Oh no. The words are already starting to be fumbled in my brain. <laughs> go, 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 go. So, folks may remember one of our earlier episodes on modernism and I defined it as a denial of mediation. And that's just been an idea that's been stuck with me forever. And I decided that since I'm doing my thesis on, on Ratzinger's sacramental anthropology, sacramentality, or even the notion of the meaning of man makes no sense if mediation is not a part of the metaphysical framework that we exist in. So I've been doing a lot of reading on this. I've been finding new philosophers who kind of help expand this notion a bit. But I've been finding something very interesting in the philosophical tradition. Nobody defines mediation. They use the you word. You mean nobody defines mediation yet? <laughs> so I mean, and I, I'm I, listen, I'm not saying it's not it's not explained or it's not you the concept that mediation tends to represent isn't explained elsewhere like i'm reading william desmond right now who is a philosopher on what he calls metaxology or the the metaxu in greek Mm. the the in between um yeah in being and so he's the closest ally on this idea he but they all use the word but nobody defines it and so like i've i i went through 12 12 dictionaries of philosophy not one of them define it which i found flabbergasting because like this is a very important idea for hegel's um idealism 
of the the self mediating mediating itself to itself, um, and God using creation to kind of mediate Himself towards His completion, right? The, in, entering into the dialectic of creation, all that stuff. But nobody defines it, and it's like. So what's happened is I was going to do this whole thing where I was just going to bring Ratzinger into conversation with these different guys in the tradition. But now like the whole first chapter is me doing a meditative exercise on what mediation is because nobody's defined it. And I actually get to do something original on this idea that's been sticking with me for like 15 years, which is really cool. This is basically like uh, finding academic gold here. Like yeah. a little niche that you can you can fit into and uh, do something with. That's that's very exciting. Well, I was I was just excited because I thought nobody's written on the sacramental vision of Ratzinger's anthropology. So there's a niche, right? Yeah. But now I found a second <laughs> niche that gets me to be very original in the realm of metaphysics. I'm hoping, and I might be wrong. Listen, I'm sure someone's talked about it somewhere. I'm j I've just been I've been searching and I've been leaning on resources and stuff. And actually, one more thing because I for almost forgot because or else producer Riley will kill me. For our uh -oh. Patreon listeners, listeners, oh, you're gonna get a sticker, but not a clerically speaking. Oh sticker. no! You are getting a peacock feather because. Oh, wait, are we what? a peacock feather sticker? Yes. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Oh yes. no! Oh, uh oh. What? So we we're not doing the feathers. Why? Because I murdered a lot of peacocks to get those feathers. <sighs> Ooh, that's awkward. Uh, well, we'll talk about that later. You could uh, make a vestment. Yes, that would be great. There we go. A peacock feather <laughs> vestment. That'll get me famous on the hey, internet. It'll work for every liturgical season. <laughs> it will. It will. <laughs> it will. So uh, the pre-orders, for those who um, don't know, I have another book coming out in October called Mysterion, The Revelatory Power of the Sacramental Worldview. And it's a book mm -hmm. that will go over a lot of topics you've probably heard us talk about on this podcast, actually. And um, and so it's coming out in October. You can you can get it for pre-orders at the Pauline store. Just Google Pauline store and you'll find it. Or it'll come out on Amazon uh, eventually. And then, but for our Patreon listeners, the sisters ask, hey, can you mail out a, uh, a sticker to all your Patreon supporters? And so... Guess what you're getting soon? You're getting peacock feather stickers. So there you go. Right. The yes. sisters said, Father Harrison, can you mail these out? And you were like, yes, producer Riley can mail these out. <laughs> Listen, I don't live in the States, man. Like, do you know how expensive it would be? No, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think it's great. You're a good leader. You delegate. Um, and then there's one more thing I was thinking of. Um, Summa Tweeta Logica. Summa Tweeta Logica. Summa tweeta logica, summa tweeta logica, summa tweeta logica, we talk about logica, summa tweeta logica, So, Father Harrison, you actually found two interesting tweets. Hey, I'm very proud of you. you. I, well, I'm glad that someone could at least do work on this podcast. 
it's great. I'm glad someone did that. Um, also, it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, we did get some better uh, questions uh, last two weeks, but some of the questions, like I want to, <laughs> kind of want to study up on some of them. Also, some of them are like longer topic questions, but uh, we got some good ones. We'll we'll put that into the into the 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 brain percolator, and we'll work on those later. But so better job, guys. Very yeah. proud of you. Uh, I will go first. This is a tweet from Carlos at Seminarian CAG. He tweets, encouraging religious vocations goes beyond just being an intention in the prayers of the faithful. Now, uh, Carlos has a very nice uh, Twitter thread uh, explaining this and talking about vocations, but I'm not going to read that because he's just a seminarian. What does he know? I'm going to use his tweet to talk about what I want to talk about with vocations. Although he's a pretty funny seminarian. He is. Like, he's hilarious. He almost made me think... He almost made me think TikTok was okay. Yeah. He's the closest anyone's ever come. He was the yeah. only non-cringe so, pre-seminarian TikTok account I ever saw. Yes. So that's impressive. I mean, it's still shameful and terrible, and he should be kicked out of seminary for it. But impressive nonetheless. No. <laughs> um, so this is the thing. This is what's been going around in my brain. So vocations is all messed up right now. Not not not. Uh, the way we cultivate vocations is all messed up right now. A lot of dioceses have someone who is the vocation director, which is a silly term for a silly position for a priest. Because really, every priest in the diocese should be a vocation director, should be fostering vocations in their parish. So the vocation director should really be the vocation collector. There you go. Meeting with guys who've already discerned this sort of thing, yeah. okay? But that's not the case. Okay. So a lot of times, uh, vocation directors, they'll run retreats, give talks. You know, I knew a vocation director in my diocese who, he kind of realized his main job was to go around the parishes and preach to the faith because there wasn't even like a good um, background or understanding of what vocations and stuff, you know, were because mm-hmm. it's just not a thing that's talked about very often. So that's a big mess. But a lot of times we go after um, and, and try to uh, get guys who are high school, college age. And that's good because a lot of times guys around that age are thinking about seminary. Uh, but I've become increasingly convinced that the real vocation directors in a diocese are... The friends we made along the way? The friends that we made along the way, sort of, kind of. <laughs> um, because that's where vocations in, actually start. If the idea of a vocation to religious life, priesthood, is normalized in the family, that's what grows vocations. The problem is we're so worried about numbers from year to year that we put all of our efforts into what's going to get us the guys uh, in seminary for this next year. So we work on those college. And I'm not saying that that's not an area we should work on, but more and more... We should be thinking long-term, what can we do to support Catholic families in the parish? What can we do to do that? Um, and also, it's a very weird uh, time for vocations. Um, family uh, that I know very well, and I, I go to their house on my days off and hang out with them. They have a little two-year-old, and this little two-year-old boy uh, was playing, and his mom was asking him this question, and she asked, hey, uh, do you, do you want to be a priest when you grew up? And he's two, he's playing, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. You're going to bring people to Jesus? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you want to be a priest? Yeah. Like on the TV show. And he points to the TV because that's where the family has been watching Mass for the last 15 months. So his idea of a priest was a guy on the TV show. I was like, oh, no. Okay. So so that's really weird and everything. But 
who knows what this little dude's uh, vocation will be, but the idea of being a priest won't be this foreign concept to him. Yeah, or something like resisted in the home. Right? No, yeah, like exactly. It's actively saying, this is an option for you. And so that's where it needs to go. So to, to focus in parishes, like what can we do just to support Catholic families and to make them open to vocations. That's what's going to help the church in the long term. So those are my thoughts. Yeah, and, and not just that. I find it's also having priests be a part of those families' lives, like where kids see the priest being a human being who enjoys good food, company, games, whatever, enjoys being in their company, essentially, right? And there's a comfort level that grows between the family and, and the priest where then the kids think, wait, that priest was happy. That priest had joy. That priest lived life. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, there's Jesus's promise, right? John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. That's our deepest desire. And if a priest can actually live that in relationship to a family, it becomes a real way to uh, inspire and say, hey, I want that. I want that. I'm not saying that there's not abundant life in marriage too, obviously. It's just, uh, but it becomes like, right. it becomes another thing on their horizon that could be an option one day. And that it's not this joyless, a sullen life of loneliness and existential angst and all that stuff. <laughs> That's only some days. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, I, I laugh, but it's actually true, but it's actually true. But it's, which, which vocation doesn't have that? Right. And that's mostly during Tuesday staff meetings. After that, everything's cool. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So um, I think I agree. I think we need to be in the families um, and, and to be there and, and to even put an emphasis there. Because if you're bringing a family to church today, that's a Herculean effort in our society, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And that requires a certain emphasis of life on, on your part as a priest, uh, in my opinion. I mean, I'm not saying ignore everyone else, but I think... They're the future of your parish. They're the future of the diocese. They're and I'm not and I'm not saying we should like ignore everybody else per se either, but it's just this is to make that choice today, like if you're going to church with your family today and you're under forty, I guess. I don't know. I'm I'm not trying not to universalize <laughs> this per se, you know? Yeah. That today that my my sense is that you're doing that with a deep sense of purpose and yeah. This isn't just a, well, we go to church because that's what you're supposed to do on a Sunday. I'm not saying that's what happens with other people, but it's just that that, that age group tends to be more discipled. I don't know. I'm not, I'm trying to, I'm trying not to get my foot caught in my mouth with saying all this, either, but it's just, <laughs> it's a tendency, right? It's not saying it's yeah. a universal fact. Okay. Um, so I think that's one of them. I think the other thing is at the same time then how we live in a parish and how we act in a parish needs to be seen as a place of life. If all we have is infighting and conflict and complaining and joylessness, why would a young person want to give their life for that? So it's, it is on the family, but the fa and to bring families into the churches, we need to have churches and places that are, are lively. And, um, and it's not, I'm not saying that there's not, con there's never not going to be conflict, but that we, that that's not, you know, there's a reason Paul went after the Corinthians so hard for all their conflict. And I think part of that is that the unity of the church breeds priests, <laughs> essentially. When the church is more unified, she is more in love and she is 
living a stronger life and a vibrant life. And so that is just going to naturally bring about vocations too. So I think it's all these things together in a way. I, I kind of agree that I don't, like I'm the vocations promoter for my diocese. Not that I've been able to do much this last year and a half with that, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm like, but isn't that every priest's job? Because mm -hmm. here's the other thing, guys, if you don't do it, like just on a purely pragmatic level, purely pragmatic, if priests aren't encouraging vocations, you're never going to retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? There's a tr I mean, that's just the little tongue in cheek there, obviously. But um, we need to be, every priest really ought to be a sign of life and joy to bring people to Christ and that Christ is the center of their life. And that this isn't just a job, a religious job. It's a way of being. So there's all those things. It's everything. So there we go. We solve locations. There we go. So every diocese now will have 20 guys entering the seminary for them next year. Yes. If that happened in my diocese, um, it would be an embarrassment of riches for us almost. We wouldn't know what to do with that many <laughs> seminarians. It'd be, we'd yeah, be, that's more the, priests the, than you have, yeah. Well, it'd be, it'd be more than the incarnated priests we have, exactly. <laughs> hey, God, God is a God of surprises. You never know. All right, this is from Abigail... Favale, Favale, Favale. Anyways, Favale apps. Uh, I'm sorry if I totally butchered your last name there. Um, it bums me out when Catholics opt to embrace a reductive, cartoonist, fractional complementarity rather than the beauty and wisdom of what the church actually teaches about men and women. And I thought this was a beautiful, um, a beautiful way of putting it. Now, I, she writes an article. She has an article she links to about what she means by fractional complementarity. But and I didn't read it. But what my sense of that is: men do this, women do this, and that's it. It becomes this, you know. Um, that, I think that's what she means. Women by be that. shopping, men be cracking open the cold one with the boys. That's right. That's that's yeah. that's. I mean, that's what the church teaches to me. Exactly. Or, or it's like, you know, men work, women stay at home, right? There is, the and, there, and there is a tendency to that in the church. And again, it's not bad that women stay at home or that women work, actually. Here, <laughs> men are this, logical right. and women feel yeah. feelings. That's it. Very simple. I don't know why everyone thinks this is so complicated. And, well, here, and here's the funny thing. Women have actually worked for ages upon ages. If you own a, a homestead, the wife was out there doing the farming and the milking and everything just like the husband was. That's work. But we've yeah. gotten, we fall into these modern notions. Anyways, I thought, but I th she's, she's absolutely right that, and this is why I'm doing my degree on theological anthropology, is the church's teaching about what it means to be male and female is much more life-giving, um, much more dynamic, and not narrow as so many people make it. Like, it really frustrates me when it gets into this kind of narrow men do this women do that and that's it no complementarity means that there is a shared life together that the strengths and weaknesses of the husband and wife of the man and the woman are there to be lived together in that i mean and i know some people may not like this per se but there is like there is a distinction to be made between sex and gender. By sex, I mean like being um, 
masculine or feminine or sorry male and female gender is to be masculine or feminine right there is a, that you can be male and have some feminine tendencies and some masculine tendencies and vice versa and everything but it doesn't remove you being man or woman right, right? This is actually very important to keep in mind, folks. Like, it's not saying that we're falling into gender ideology with all this. It's just saying that there's a distinction of a lived experience that complementarity really is meant to feed these things. So that when you enter a marriage, like, like I, I think in most marriages, my encounter is there's the extrovert and there's the introvert. For example, not always, but that's often the case. Well, that that helps each other. The introvert tells the extrovert, chill. <laughs> And yeah. and the extrovert says, "Hey, no, we're going to we're, we're, we need this, or you know, they'll be able to create the social occasions for friendship and life and everything, and so on and so forth." Sometimes it's the man, sometimes it's the woman, but this this is the real live complementarity where it's not reduced to these specific roles in a quantifiable way, which is so darn freaking modern, and I'm so done with this thing that people do not realize how modern they actually are and not acting out of a real lived christian anthropology and it, which is where we experience love and give love and receive it where being the being of the other is always affirmed and and that that happens in a distinctively male and female way but not in these reductionistic categories of men do Y, women do X, and that's it. End rant. No, it's good because you pointed out some of the difficulties because we live in a cultural moment where there's large forces in our society that want to make uh, anything uh, gendered is purely a uh, cultural uh, invention. Right. So the ideas of masculine and fem feminine are completely manufactured. Uh, and then, and that's wrong. And the church knows that's wrong. But a lot of people, uh, in response to this, uh, do that reductive thing. Like, no, 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 these are real, and this is, this is exactly what they are. And this goes to show, like, the intellectual bankruptcy of some of the loudest Catholic commentators. Uh, and it's embarrassing. And all it does is feed into what people want to hear. It's coming out of a place of deep woundedness instead of intellectual nuance, of empathy, of understanding the church tradition. And it's comically bad, but it's also terrifyingly pervasive in a lot of corners of the internet. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, but absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, I talked a little bit about this sort of thing when I was uh, over at the Crunch uh, podcast. And the thing is, it is a difficult thing to talk about because you do have to be so nuanced because um, these things are real, but you have to talk about them with a kind of reverence because you're talking about one of the mysteries of God that were made in his image and likeness. And what does that mean? And what does it mean to be masculine, feminine, male and female? Uh, and the fact that the people aren't willing to do some work because they know if they say a hard truth that they'll get a bunch of people to, to you know, pat them on the back and give them money and like some subscribes is uh, juvenile and ridiculous and pathetic. Um, and I, <laughs> and I, it really makes me mad. Uh, so yeah, these things are far more complicated. They are real. Um, and maybe that's a podcast for another day. And, and I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, you mentioned that this is a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. When, when Paul talks about, marriage he says this is a great mystery and apply it to christ and his church mystery here is also meaning sacrament but it's also this redemptive 
hidden reality that you will never fully grasp. What it means to be male and female, we can understand, we can enter into deeply and come to some deep knowledge around it, but it's never exhausted, right? And so that requires seeing men and women in, in reverence and to see what it means to be male and female as a rever in a reverential posture of a pure gift that is given to us. Because at the heart of this, the church's teaching is that we are gifted as male and female. Like this is gifted to us mm -hmm. by God. And that's something that that's something we learn to embrace. Like so, we re the gift is given. It's not imposed. It's received, appre appreciated, embraced, and lived out. And then, as living as man, as woman, we're going to encounter each other in such a way where, like, listen, I know for myself. As it's funny, like I know uh, I'm a man, absolutely, one hundred percent. But I have like I have a very emotive side, right? Mm -hmm. And that's okay. A lot of priests do, and a lot of priests do, and 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 um and I and I I've always found it, I found great ease talking with women, but that doesn't mean I'm any less of a man, right? Right. And I think that's an important thing, or or women who like sports and play sports or whatever doesn't make them any less of a woman, right? This these those things don't define what it means to be male and female. Those things are defined in relationship with each other in the image of God that all of humanity is created in. The John Paul II's theology of the body is really an attempt to explore and deepen, and I think is just really important. So we, we need to approach these questions with humility and in astonishment at the mystery. And with that, let's go into presbyteral exhortations. And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Mm -hmm. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn <laughs> It's my favorite part. Oh, it's the best part. <laughs> yes. Yes. Quite. Yes. Quite. So. Yes. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about our brother priest, uh, Father Altman, and I'll explain who he is and why he's been in the Catholic news in a moment. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that he is uh, our brother priest, and not just talking about him, but using him as a springboard uh, for something that's going on uh, in the church, especially in America, in Western uh, media, and that sort of thing. Uh, because I'm kind of kind of tired of it. Um, not that this conversation is going to solve all the things, but um, it's, it's, uh, so we, I mean, it's one of those things that it's difficult. Uh, we try to be very wary of our presence on the internet. Uh, that's part of the reason why I killed my Twitter account, because it was bad for me, and I think bad for other people as well. Uh, but we still have this platform. We have uh, listeners. We have listeners who don't agree with us on everything. Um, and, and part of me feels like it, it almost feels futile or useless to talk about certain things like the church militant or Taylor Marshall or uh, Timothy Gordon or whoever else. Um, it feels like just yelling at a bunch of voices that are already yelling. Why don't we just be normal, ignore that stuff, 
uh, talk about different issues in a way that is, uh, you know, more in line with the heart of the church and to the best that we're able to. Okay. We're showing that perfect at that. But more and more, I have found um, that the internet leaks more and more into real life, whether that be conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory stuff, whether that be political things on the left and on the right, uh, especially this past you know 15 months or so, where a lot more people have been on the internet looking for comfort, information, a place to vent their anger. And that has led to some deep divisions and just evil, to be honest, uh, in the church. Um, and the worst kind of evil, which is under the guise, the disguise of goodness or truth, claiming to be truth, but really being an utter perversion and bastardization of the gospel. So if you haven't been on either Catholic Twitter or Catholic media, then you know what? God bless you. You're, you're the real hero here. But if you want to keep listening to the podcast anyway, let me describe what's going on here. And I'm taking most of this from um, the Pillars reporting um, because they're the best. Mm -hmm. So basically, this uh, priest, Father Altman, um, was asked to resign from his parish because he was deemed uh, ineffectual and uh, divisive by the bishop. He gained some popularity uh, by saying that um, nobody who voted uh, Democrat was actually Catholic because you can't be Catholic and vote Democratic. Uh, I was listening to things, uh, quoting from the pillar, uh, saying the bishops enforcing pandemic restrictions would burn in the lowest, hottest levels of hell, defending or offering justifications for the lynching of black people in the Jim Crow era, suggesting that women are not permitted to preach liturgically because we need the truth, claiming coronavirus vaccines are a massive experiment designed for social control. Um, and just a lot of his homilies and stuff being uh, more political for right kind of stuff. Now, I want to preface a lot of stuff. Uh, I think a lot of us can agree that there's been a lot to be desired in the way that many bishops have handled the pandemic. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, if I had the hindsight that I have now, I would have things be very different the way we handled things. Uh, I, I very much remember those first few weeks when no one knew what was going on. Everyone was freaking out. This was a scary thing. Um, and bishops made decisions given the information that they had uh and not all those were great uh, i you know for example the stuff going on with you with a lockdown for the last seven months um this has been a big mess is it understandable and even justified that a lot of catholic people are frustrated angry yes i get that okay um as far as the democratic republican uh thing um, Father Harrison, you and I uh, have no problem saying the absolute truth that abortion is the preeminent evil in uh, the West right now. Absolutely. Um, a lot of people are frustrated that it seems that a lot of priests um, are wary of broaching these issues. Some maybe are. Some maybe never talk about abortion and should. Um, some people, maybe there are priests who give uh, the wink and the nod to uh, sex outside of marriage or using contraception. This is a thing that exists. I think we have to admit that. Um, I think that there's a lack of intellectual honesty in that position, that if you are Catholic, you cannot vote Democrat. That's just morally untrue. Um, I do believe that you do have to do a lot more 
uh, discernment. You have to do a lot more uh, reasoning if you are willing to do that. But it's absolutely true that you can be a Catholic in absolute good standing and vote Democrat if you're doing it for the right reasons. That's just true. Um, so, and, you know, I also am very willing to admit that a new vaccine, it's a scary thing. This is a new technology, a new thing. Um, there's always cultural hesitancy around vaccines, going back to the first vaccines that we made. So if there's a general kind of trepidation or just worry, I think that's also very understandable. I want to give all those prefaces also because the reasons why Father Altman is has been asked to be removed, that's not actually what I want to focus on. That's not actually the thing that bothers me the most. What bothers me is his reaction to this. Uh, in his homily, after uh, as he publicly announced that he was asked to resign, that he was going to fight it, he uh, says this, once again quoting from the pillar, I regret to inform you that they want my head on the platter. They want my head now for speaking the truth. I apparently have created enemies in the hierarchy. Unfortunately, in our cancel culture, if the left whines like they do, like a spoiled brat, often enough, they succeed in canceling so many voices of truth. And now they're whining, like, if I may say so, like pansy babies that they are, to cancel me, allegedly because I am divisive, as they like to say. Or as the bishop has stated to me, I am ineffective. Bishop Callahan has asked me to resign as a pastor this past Friday, two days ago, because I'm ineffective and divisive. And so let's get to what I actually want to talk about is this bastardization of the gospel's idea of suffering. It's driving me insane. Uh, I preached about this a little bit this morning. That what the gospel teaches us is that Jesus Christ was obedient to the Father. Um, he's obedient moment to moment, ever listening to the Father. He knows what his overall mission is as, as the God-man, but he's waiting for that moment. That's why he keeps saying, um, my hour has not come. Um, it's You can see the moment to moment nature of it when um, at the wedding feast of Cana, uh, Our Lady says they have no wine, and Jesus says, "Well, it's not. It's not my hour." Then immediately, boom! It's his hour, and he listens to that message from the Father, and he performs his first miracle, begins more and more public ministry. The gospel teaches us that Christ takes on all of human suffering, and how does he do this? He is like a lamb led to the slaughter. If you look at the passion narratives, he speaks the truth, but he speaks it plainly. He is quiet most of the time. Um, he kind of lets the people who are accusing him kind of fumble over their own words. He does so with humility and love. Not once does he brag about being crucified. Not once does he brag about being persecuted or quote unquote canceled because that would be making the mission about himself. And it's not. It's about his love for the father and his obedience to the father. What these people are doing when they start using either this cancel culture language or just going on every platform saying that they're being suppressed for the truth is that they're taking this spiritual idea of the power of suffering and using it for worldly power. This priest has raised over $160,000 for his canonical 300000 now. I do not... 300000 now, okay? 300000 I do not know how much a canon lawyer costs. I know a lot of good canon lawyers who would help out a priest pro bono. He has said that any 
money they raises that goes beyond this will go to LifeSite News and the church militant. That's where the extra money is going to go to those people, not to the poor, not to uh, nursing homes that are in disrepair, uh, not to other poor parishes, uh, none of that, not to soup kitchens, nothing. It's going to propaganda machines that claim to be Catholic. These people take what should be the spiritual power of suffering, and they are trying to use it for worldly power, making it more and more about themselves, creating cults of personality, drawing people away from Jesus Christ and to themselves, and drawing both themselves and their people into hell. That is what is happening. And what bothers me the most about this is that this is my brother priest, and he's bastardizing the priesthood, and he's not the only one. And the fact that some bishops have supported him just shows the absolute intellectual depravity of many people in our church. This idea that I'm just preaching truth. No, you're preaching yourself in doing this. You've built the parish around yourself. And that's not a far right. uh, They don't have a monopoly on this. There are many far left priests who have done the same damn thing, building the parish upon themselves and not Christ, not seeing themselves as, to use one of your fancy words, Father Harrison, a taxi, a bridge in between these two things, not pointing to Christ. And the fact that they think that they're really tough and really strong and talking about all these pansies when they are the most pathetic juvenile people needs to be called out. It's ridiculous. It's a stain on the priesthood. And I'm going to pause and catch my breath and you can tell me your thoughts. I... I think part of what's happening is there are a lot of people who are hungry for the church's teaching. Yes. And the hierarchy in general has done a pretty lousy job at this. Be honest, right? It's part of not not just talking bishops, talking priests too, right? Like it, we absolutely we share. Like the bishop has the overall role of to teach, to govern, and to sanctify, but priest especially when he's a pastor also shares in this role in the local way over his parish he share, he he's an extension if you will of the bishop's ministry there so that's what i mean when i say hierarchy it's like you know like it, 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 the teaching aspect is 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 essential and it's been not been but it's not been happening in the last five or ten years it's been going on since the 70s 80s and what happened was when there's a vacuum that arises from all of this people step up and for a while things that were stepping up were fine like they were just trying to give something to people who were starving for this the problem is the wound or the broken arm or whatever was never actually healed and so what it's allowed is because it's not healed and it's not centered around the church's communion it festers and divides and grows um, parasitical, etc. And so this is that's kind of one of the reasons this where it's coming from is that we've failed as teachers. We have failed as teachers, and we've allowed ourselves to be. And, it's, and this has actually been going on since like the 19th century in the West. We've allowed 
enlightenment forms of thinking to govern how we approach the truth of faith. Because when people say, I'm speaking the truth, this, it, it, listen, when someone says, I'm just speaking the truth, you know, it's just clear. No, the truth is a mystery. Because the truth is not an idea. The truth is a person in Jesus Christ. Benedict, one of Benedict's favorite phrases, right? The truth is a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not, I am a way, a truth, a life. I am, it's Jesus who is the truth. But how does Jesus live that truth? Well, he lives it in the mystery of his incarnation, which is, the, the paradoxical uh, communion of humanity and divinity under the hypothesis of the person of the word, of the son. And so, it, like, me thinking obviously more theoretical, and I'm going to be very theoretical today because that's where my head's at all week, is it's that failure in teaching isn't just about the truths of faith. We never taught people how to live and think Catholicly. <laughs> and so what happens is when you don't do that, well, we need, we need a, a space and a, and a culture to act out of and to be rooted in, in order to apprehend and understand the world. So, okay, it's not rooted in the church's way of knowing and being. So it's going to be rooted in the country's way of knowing and being. And so what has, because of all of this, we have now allowed the left-right distinction to govern North American Catholicism. I will say it, is, it seems heavier set in, in, in the States than it is in Canada, but it, it's, it's creeping up here. It's creeping up here. And it's not okay. The problem is twofold one who is out there to speak up against that and two when you do speak against it you immediately become a target yourself and i think especially in the priesthood a lot of us are hesitant or wary of that not because we don't want to do it or don't want to it listen the the, the body has many members and that not be our mission, right? Um, we need to have the same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God as something to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself. This is the form of Christian thinking and Christian living. It's not to hold on, but it's to receive and to self-give, right? Eros and agape. I too am kind of fed up with it all, but I think part of it is everyone is stuck in these polarized places and so they can't actually hear each other. I think sometimes figures like Altman or Marshall get the attention they get, not for ideological reasons. I, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know enough people who listen to me. I know some, but I don't know enough. And I, I try to listen, I really do, I try to listen. But it's it's because, well, Father, I just want, I want liturgy as the council asked it to be. And we haven't given it to them. And when we do, what happens? 
Well, then the other side says, no, you're not living the spirit of the council. And you are caught in this place of an intense battle. And I don't think, and here's the thing, folks, going right or left is not the answer here. Because that's not paradoxical. That's not Christocentric. That's not, Christology has to be the heart of all of this for us. Who Jesus is as human and divine, that paradox has to be the governing of our thinking and being here. And we, we've not done it. We, we think too Americanly, <laughs> to put it really badly. That's not good English, but you know. Um, um, <laughs> we, we think too Americanly. Um, and so what do we do about that? I, I mean, man, I, I hesitate to say this, but I, I don't think, I can't think of anything else to do. Bishops need to throw the gauntlet down. Against all these figures. The days of, uh, I, I, we've given them every inch and they've taken miles and miles and 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 in this, Even case, in this right? case, like, yeah, his bishop, I think, gave him too much leeway. Listen, if I was doing that, I would hope the bishop would say, "You're shut down. Delete your Twitter. You're out of the parish, and you're going somewhere for a while." Because it's. A... But here's the yeah. thing, Father Harrison. Here's the problem: is that all the bishops are corrupt. They all covered up the scandal. Let me let me riff on this for a second. Right, okay. And this is what's so frustrating to me is that I know the pain that many bishops caused. Because bishops and priests did these things, they have taken away an aspect of my fatherhood where I have to second guess myself whenever I'm around young people, when I meet new families, that it is a difficulty just to be normal and to because you always have to be aware um and there's an aspect of prudence in that that in order to have a culture where you can protect children in this you have to do that but it kills me every single time my diocese is going from 200 some parishes to 60 okay i have every reason to be frustrated with decisions that have been made okay i am very well aware that there are a lot of bishops who maybe don't have the theological or canonical training to make decisions properly, okay? But just, I guess I'm just too, too traditional because I still believe in obedience. I still believe that as a spiritual necessity, when I put my hands in between the hands of the bishop and promise respect and obedience, respect. that meant respect. something to me. That, that's a promise, respect, and, and it's obedience. it's not to the office, it's to the person. And that's a... It's, do you promise yes. respect and obedience to me and my successors? Has nothing to do with the office there, actually. Mm -hmm. It's to the person who holds the office. And maybe I'm just not enough of a coward to throw that promise out the window. Maybe that's what makes me a strong man, is throwing that out and taking the easy way out instead of really struggling with these things. You know, maybe, maybe I'm, uh, it's just, I can't take the easy way out of saying, oh, if you don't, if you vote Democrat, then you're not Catholic. That would be the easy thing to do. But the problem is that I care too much about the salvation of my own soul. And the salvation of my own soul depends on how I am a priest to everyone in my parish. So maybe maybe there are other priests who just aren't willing to take up that cross to walk with people, to lead with truth and compassion. By the way, any 
any presentation of the truth that doesn't have love in it is a is um desecrates the truth uh it would be a lot easier just to be like oh yeah this is how we're doing mass screw you if you don't like it but i'm trying to be a good priest and i'm failing in a lot of different ways but these guys are cowards these guys have abandoned their fatherhood for the easy way out because they like likes they like a cult of personality and in and i totally agree with all that you said that this is a mess that we have made for ourselves i absolutely agree uh, like, I mm-hmm. empathize deeply with the frustration and the anger. So do you. So does f- every priest I know. But I'm just too traditional to throw out the idea of obedience. I'm just too traditional to throw out the idea of my spiritual duty to the people. And these guys are not. And, and yet, and yet, they are being applauded by people for speaking the truth. That's right. not what they're doing. That's not what they're doing. They're tearing apart the truth. They are bastards. They are pimping out the truth for their own cult of personality. Just to, you know what? A priest that really priest, preaches hard truths makes everybody in the congregation uncomfortable because he will point out their sin because the priest is a sinner like the rest of them and he knows their sin. If every time you go and hear a priest preach, you are just filled with satisfaction that he's calling out the right kinds of people, then that is not a good preacher. A good preacher calls out sin in all of us and gives us the hope in Jesus Christ that you both feel, yes, I feel convicted that I have failed, but I also have great hope and love in Jesus Christ. That's what good preaching does. Not this not this finding your audience, forming your audience, and making them feel good. They're doing the same things that they complain about other priests on the left, who like all their preaching is just to make them feel good. You're doing the same damn thing. But what makes these kinds of people feel good is not lovey-dovey, blah, blah, blah. What makes these kind of people feel good is you hate the right people. That's the kind of parishes that they're forming. That's the kind of parish Father Altman is forming. And it's unacceptable. It's an abandonment of fatherhood. I'm really glad that you're bringing in all this nuanced cultural theory stuff because I think it's very important. Yeah. But it's it's enough. And I absolutely agree that, yeah, the bishops can come down on this. And you know what? A lot of people aren't going to listen to those bishops. No. They're not. So here's the thing. Twofold. One is, this gets to a whole other problem. Church leadership needs to stop burying its head in the sand and thinking the internet's not real. I'm sorry it is. Yeah. Why? Well, it's part of the created order. It uses fiber optic cables mm-hmm. and motherboards and everything that is computery. That's part of creation. It's materiality. It's real. It is real. And our interactions on there, like you and I right now, we are talking through cameras thousands of kilometers apart. <laughs> right? <laughs> this doesn't mean what yeah. we're doing in right now isn't real. No, it is real. And so we got us because here's the internet. I mean, <laughs> there's been, I mean, we, we talked about this actually at the Notre Dame conference a bit. Like there's no, there's no teaching or formation around virtue around any of this. It's just, we, we don't know how to discern the truth on it. But also it's like, we need people out there who are kind of like ecclesially approved to be talking about this. So we need 
to the ecclesial leadership needs to take the internet seriously especially this year where the internet really fomented um because i've mentioned this before because we lacked community to filter things people fell into deep divisive ideas because didn't have people to filter that out because here's the thing in the end we care more about relationships than ideas and if our family's like, listen, if you're if this is what you think, I don't know if we can hang out for a while. You'd be like, oh, okay, I'll just ditch this. Not everybody, but that's that that relationships purify this often, at least, right? Or, or <laughs> all sorts of things. So we need to take the internet seriously. It is real, and it's become a platform where anybody can go and speak. And I really think the local bishops have a responsibility over these people to say yeah i mean listen anybody can say whatever they want on the internet but i am publicly declaring this person does not speak the truth of the church and isn't in communion with it this is this is because this is the other thing it's like back in the day bishops i mean bishops were at war with each other all the time right i mean sometimes like you're you don't believe in the in the in the divinity. You're, you're you don't believe in the divinity of the Holy Spirit. You know we're out of communion with each other, right? Which is true. And I'm not yeah. saying we want, I want to see like Episcopal public fisticuffs or anything like that. Although that would be interesting. Um, but there needs to be, be interesting. The governance of the Episcopal office is not just the governance of the goods of the church. It is, yes. The, the role of sanctification dovetails with this. It's the governance governance of communion, and it's about saying this person is out of communion with the church because of the way and means by which they present things. And here's the thing: I believe, I really believe that if this became normative in Episcopal leadership, and listen, and I say this as an outsider who has like no inclinations of what an Episcopal life is actually like, okay? Like, I I, I, I recognize, <laughs> yeah. I don't understand all the yeah. subtleties. And so if there is a bishop listening, like, we love you and we care for you. And because and, most bishops are trying their best, right? I get this. I really get this, right? Yeah. But imagine that if that exercise of authority, I think it would actually bring the people who have this visceral reaction against the Episcopacy in general around. Because they're now seeing, it may take time, but they're now seeing the very exercise of authority they've been wanting and desiring forever. It may not go the way they want, but I think it brings people around. Because, But at the same time, it's also about people making a choice. Do you actually stand with the communion of the church? Because if you don't, like Paul was totally fine with people leaving, excommunicating themselves, essentially. Like your heart, your heart your, as a pastor, your heart should break, but it doesn't mean that it's the, because here's the thing just because they leave doesn't mean they can't come back eventually right let their freedom exercise itself but we need we need to take the internet seriously i just think we need to take censoring of these voices a lot more seriously or even if they're not in your diocese to say to your priest to your, to your priest and your laity that these voices hurt the communion of the church. And if you are listening to them, you ought not to go to, and, and agree with them, you ought not to go to communion until, because, and the bishop, like, 
listen, there's a quick little side story on this. Sorry, I, I, we've both been mono- it's, it's a monologue episode for both of us, right? Isn't it? Um, which is fine, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the um, early 20th century, there was a big problem around the movement called L'Action Française, which was an integralist movement that attempted to bring secular power and, and the church or certain members of the church were tremp- aligning with this movement so the church could increase her kind of secular authority if you will like to put her hands into the secular realm a lot more and to gain greater prominence over french society and uh the reason i know about this because blondel really worked hard against them he was like a lone voice um and what happened was pius the 11th said he put down an interdict (laughs) he said if you read their newspaper if you have a membership card if you go to their meetings or rallies, you are under the penalty of interdict and are not in communion with the church, and you need to cease these things. And it killed the movement, at least from the church's perspective. Like Catholics left it in droves because they wanted to be in communion with the church. You need that discipline, right? And, and, and finally, just a little say thing. I think the other issue is, and I'm glad we're doing this in a way, because there aren't enough voices speaking out anymore and fighting back and i think the one reason is there's not enough of us out there and you feel like you're uh you feel alone on the battlefield and that's scary and dangerous and that's not like and so i think we need to be fomenting this also i feel like a i feel like a crazy person like go back to our early episodes go back to the trading episode like the things that we've been working on or as much as one can work on or have a mission in seminary to be ordained was because a lot of us grew up in a church that did not preach the truth or didn't seem to, right? Um, that liturgies were half-hearted, weird conglomerations of everybody's idea. Um, that we knew things like, you know, sex outside of marriage, contraception, abortion. These things are bad. They're a part of a culture of death. Um, all these things that made us right wing. Why am I not getting mad about um, James Martin on this podcast? Because he's, I mean, his ideology is an old enemy that I'm used to, you know? Uh, I think he's just as culpable as far as sowing confusion in the church. Uh, Some of his biblical exegesis is just laughably dated and wrong. Uh, And as much as he's maybe trying to do a good thing, he's very much confusing uh, a lot of people in the church, okay? So, I mean... There, there you go. But the thing is, all of a sudden, there's been this strong right-wing push that messes up the project that I think a lot of priests are doing, which is to try to bring about more reverent liturgy, more orthodoxy. These people have claimed that title and say that that's what they're doing, but they're not. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They are ruining this good thing, and that's what makes me so mad. Like I said, like left-wing cafeteria Catholics, I'm used to that. I don't like it. Preach against it? Absolutely. I talk about how Catholic Church is the one true church. I talk about how mortal sin is a real thing. I talk about how hell is a real place. And not everyone just goes to heaven, right? That's just been the stance. But now, these people who will say some of these true things, but twist it and the way they present it, sowing division not looking at things with a Catholic mind and imagination, but instead with an American mindset. That's why I'm so upset, because they're ruining a good project of the reform of the reform of the church, which I think is so necessary right now. 
I think part of it too is the way we formed orthodoxy in the church for so long was you're an orthodox if you hold like these five traits essentially right and suddenly like like I think our generation yes. like so I'll be honest I don't know if I've mentioned abortion homilies I've never had a full homily on abortion and, and, I'll, I'll, and it's not unless it's not because I don't think it's an evil uh, it is but my pastoral experience tells me something that most people don't even know the Lord. What, kind, what is moralism going to do to change their hearts? It's not. And that slow, patient, suffering, walking along. But then you hear, well, Father, you know, you need to preach about abortion and this and this and this and the evil's contraception. And I'm like, dude, my diocese, trust me, we're, we're, we're a retirement diocese. <laughs> Contraception's not going to do anything here, you know? Um, just because it's an just because it's wrong doesn't mean it has to be preached all the time like this moralistic listen do you wonder why a lot of young people left the church it's because of the moralism that we preached I'm not, and again I'm not saying any of these things are wrong but I'm saying they need to be done, they need to be done in a more nuanced way because you need to take the heart of your audience into consideration and my, my, my pastoral experience is my people barely know how to pray how can I expect them to fight the evils of abortion when they can't even, they don't even have a, the basic relationship with Christ through his church. I need to build that up so that they can become witnesses to the gospel of life. And, and my pastoral said, you know, so it's, it's the preaching and the, and, and like, and I think there's a difference. I don't know if preaching's the time for a lot of stuff. Or, like there are moral situations that I think actually affect most of the people in my pews a lot more. Like pornography is a big one. That I can preach on, but I will preach on it from the lens of Christ. I will not say you are a horrible human being and, and I can't believe this, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm going to say, listen, Christ loves you and he wants to suffer through your endurance through these temptations to bring you to the fullness of grace because you know this is destroying your life. And I want, and Christ wants to be with that, live that in you mm -hmm. and with you. He wants to suffer through your temptations with you. And, and so there's these expectations around what preaching should be like. I think a lot of the moral stuff is more in the realm of teaching, right? And that's not the place of the homily. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know. It's just, I guess it's just, you have to, people need to understand that priests have a priority of proclaiming Christ to their people and forming them in them, forming him in them. And that's where the preaching ought to go so that these other things form up. And so, but a generation was like, listen, you're only Catholic if you talk about abortions and the evil of contraception. And I, I don't know, I, I'm not, it's like, and, it, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on this because maybe am I not being horrified at the evils that are being repeated around abortion? Maybe, maybe I'm too lukewarm sometimes on that. And that's something I have to pray about and consider, you know, and because this is the last. Okay, sorry. It's a, it's a whole bunch of thoughts, but the life of a parish is meant to be the life of a family. And parents are going to be weak. I've said this to parents multiple times when they say, I don't know if I did all the right things. I'm like, well, you didn't. <laughs> And they're like, what? I said, no, no, you're not a perfect parent. Yes, you did things probably that would interfere with your child's ability to know and love Christ through his church. 
But that doesn't stop Christ. That's why you have the sacrament of marriage, so that the grace of that sacrament makes up for your weakness and your lack. And it's the same thing as a priest, that we are there to, like, I'm not perfect. I know my weaknesses. I'm not going to govern things perfectly. I'm I'm going to be late on getting back on emails and forget about paperwork and all this stuff. And... And, and I need to, and I need to work on that. But that's my; these are my weaknesses that I would hope and pray that my people would live with me, and I will live with their weaknesses. But like, essentially, like we need to humility say, like, actually, we are weak sinners who don't know what's going on, and we just need Christ to draw us through all of this. If we can all have that stance together, the place of weakness and nothingness is the place and heart of communion because it's where grace grace works. That's the starting point we need to be in. And I think that's like the starting point in grace that starts to bring a solution to this problem because it refuses to fall into the political ideology, it refu- it, but rather starts with the, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a reason we start the mass with the confidior. And just to make things clear, just because I'm really ticked off doesn't mean I'm in any way kind of hopeless about the situation. I very much read all of this, all of the chaos of our time as this great revelation that the Lord is allowing to occur. Um, he is showing us who we are. Um, he's showing me who I am in the in the errors in which I have tried to combat things. He's um, just revealing that like to everyone, if they have eyes to see, no, your heart really isn't set on the church. It's set on the idea of a church. Your idea isn't set on, your mind isn't, and heart isn't set on holiness. It's your idea of holiness. That we have made so many idols for so long and we claim their Christ. And this is this is the tricky thing about idols. When uh, the Israelites made the idol of the golden calf, they didn't say, this is our new God, Jim. They said, this golden calf is Yahweh. That's what they said. And we do the same thing. Um, whether it be like if whether it's the idol is our priest, whether the idol is the person we hate, whether the idol is our parish, whether the idol is this or that figure or this or that ideology, we all point to them saying, no, 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 I'm orthodox. This is this is the true God here. And a lot of us are, are wrong about that. And so we need first to be pointed out that, yeah, we're wrong. But also like the Lord wants to bring us all back to him. There's a reason why one of the last things Jesus uh, preached about in the Gospel of John was unity. That his disciples may be one as he and the Father are one. He prayed that because he knew it was going to be really tough for us. Okay, And the tough thing about true unity is that we have to come to terms with the fact that we are divided. And these are our divisions. Okay? We can't gloss over them. We can't pretend they don't exist. We can't stick our head, head in the sand and hope they go away. We can't do this terrible thing that our church and our culture does where, well, this shouldn't be the case, so I'm going to pretend it's not the case. No, 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 this is the case. And I think once we face up to the overwhelming problem and realize how individually helpless we may be, that's when our hearts will be turned and opened up to the fact that, yes, Jesus is going to heal this in the church. Yes, Jesus knows what's going on. He cares about it. Yes, his grace is working in so many people, and it will be so many more people. So in no way am I uh, despondent about what's going on. It's incredibly frustrating. And if you look at the problem too long, it can break your brain. That's why whenever we look at our own sinfulness, we have to look at it in the light of Christ to see that, yes, we failed, but also see that God still looks at us and loves us. And that's the power of transformation and conversion. So... Uh, I've said all that I want to say 
Anything else, Father Harrison? I could probably say more, but it, no, that's, that's good enough <laughs> for you. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, oh, man. I hope everyone feels cheery after all. You should. <laughs> Get yourself some coffee. It's, oh. it's, it's, you know, spring is coming. Things are slowly going back to normal. Get your vaccine. Let someone sneeze on your face. Have, have a grand old time. That's my suggestion to people. Um, <laughs> okay. So, thank you for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies, too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. As an update, if you're uh, just re-listening or first-time listener, we've moved our recording dates where we will release an episode every other week because Father Harrison has so much stuff to do as a priest and scholar and I have a bunch of stuff to do but there'll be more announcements on that later but uh, thanks for hanging with us uh, you can contact the podcast and receive updates at clericalpod on twitter find us on facebook, youtube or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com uh, please keep sending your questions uh, ideas for um, uh, topics we appreciate all of that uh, also if you want to send us prayer requests or stuff we before every episode we make sure we pray you know, for the, uh, the recording of the podcast, but also for everyone who uh, has asked us uh, to pray for them. So, yeah, so just your prayer request. We like to pray for people. That's a good priestly thing to do. Peace. Wait, 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 where, where, where can we find where you? Can you find, oh, wait, sorry, I missed my gimmick. Um, you can find me uh, uh, climbing the, the roof of my parish rectory, high on caffeine, screaming the gospel to all the people of Newcastle. With the energy of coffee beans. It's like, it's like that. It's like that episode of The Simpsons where Maggie gets a little sip of caffeine and coffee, <laughs> and, and 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 it's the episode where Lisa's babysitting them and everything. Yes, exactly. Wrong. You're just climbing up on the shower. Pole. Mother Harrison. You can find me on Twitter at fr Harrison. <laughs> Peace. There we go. Now we can. Now. Peace. We can leave. Yes, Love God you guys. bless you.